Glad to see you all this morning. Uh, I want to ask you a question. So we're moving through Genesis and um, we're moving through Genesis. And uh, I want to ask you out of the last few weeks that we've kind of started um, our track of Genesis again. Um, I'm curious what aspect has impacted you most greatly. In other words, what part, thank you, babe, what part of God's word that we've been reading has been most helpful to your walk with Christ? Because, you know, we're, we're reading this Old Testament narrative. We, we like to use the word narrative more than story, although I'll use both terms. It's just important to know that this is true historical narrative. So if you ever hear me use the word story, I mean the story of God's true historical narrative, okay? Uh, because what we're reading in Genesis are factual events with real people uh, that really happened. And God says in the New Testament that these things were written down for our instruction. God recorded these events for our instruction that we might learn them, learn from them, that we might grow from them. And so what has been maybe jolting to you in your knowledge of the Lord or, or of your faith, in your faith, what has been a, a challenge to you? What, what have you seen that has sort of said, oh yeah, I've experienced that. You know, Abram seeing a, a circumstance that seemed impossible to him with the famine in the land and saying, I, I don't know what we're going to do here. God called me to come out here, but I'm going to go south to Egypt. And then he gets to Egypt and he sees another challenge. And so he tells this half truth, which half truth is a whole lie, right? So he sees, tells this half truth. Hey, Sarai, when we get in there, they're going to maybe kill me because you're beautiful and they're going to want to have you and I'm in the way. So they're going to take me out. So tell them that you're my sister. Genesis 20 tells us that was a, a partial truth because, right, the same father. So they were half siblings, right? Um, but the Lord says, no, 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 no. I'm going to accomplish my purpose through you. And we'll see it again today, but I'm going to do it in my way. I don't know about you. That's a hard sermon to preach because I know how many times, well, I can't count how many times I'm tempted to take difficult circumstances into my own hands, but I can tell you there are many times that I have. Right. And so again, we, we come to truth after truth from one end of the book in Genesis to the other in Revelation. We see that God's truth is always applicable and always piercing our hearts. And we'll see that even more today as we talk about God's covenant promise. Okay. So God's covenant promise is one that can only be received and assured by faith. Now hang on to that phrase, God's covenant promise is one that can only be received by faith and it can only be assured by faith or in faith. And we're going to see this by seeing that uh, God has called us to trust in him as a person, as, as the person, the, 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 uh, the personal God who he is, Yahweh, as he reveals himself to his children. So we, we trust in the Lord. We must trust in the Lord by hoping in his promise. Uh, you might say we trust in the Lord and hope in his promise. We'll get there in a minute. Secondly, salvation, uh, justification only comes by faith. And thirdly, we're going to see that we are to rest in the assurance that God provides. So let's dive in together. Genesis 15. I'm going to read it in a few segments this morning. Genesis 15, one through six. Here we go. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your great reward. 
or your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Eleazar was like his right-hand man. It's not an insult on Eleazar, by the way. It's just, he's not my son. That's all it was. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my, uh, a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Right out of the gates in verse one, God tells Abram who he is. Abram came to the Lord in a vision. And first thing that he does is he seeks to dispel his fear. Now, we don't know exactly how much time went on between chapter 14 and chapter 15. Some commentators say, you know, maybe close to 10 years, uh, because not too long later, we say we see in Genesis 16 that it had been about 10 years. So this could have been right before that, or it could have been a little bit more closely tied with what happened in Genesis chapter 14. Either way, Abram was dealing with some fear, either fear from, you know, remember he just routed some kings with some of his buddies, right? And no king likes to have, uh, likes to be given a what for and, uh, and look poorly to their people, right? I mean, it's just not a good look. And so there's probably some fear in Abram. Like we just routed these guys, but they're not going to go down easy, right? They're not going to go down without a fight. They're probably going to come after me at some point. So whether it was that fear or if it was the fear that the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said, don't fear because, you know, an angel appearing to you in a vision um, is fear invoking, right? But either way, the Lord dispels his fear and says, fear not or do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. son, don't be afraid. I will protect you. I Jehovah God, Yahweh, I am is your shield. There's a twofold truth that we need to grasp here. One is that a call to faith is a call to trust in the, our personal God. That's what the Lord is saying. I am your fear, uh, your, your, your shield. We've already seen this begin to play out, right? If you think Abram is called to, uh, to leave Ur, to leave his extended family... And um, there's this instance of faith where he trusts in Yahweh, the, his personal God. Uh, Abram's faith wavers when he faces these tough situations. And in God's mercy, the Lord disciplined Abraham and he brought him back to the place of worship where his faith was rekindled. And Abram begins to act out this faith. And he trusts the Lord to protect him, to provide for him while Lot chooses maybe the better portion of the land according to human eyes. And then after Abram rescues Lot, 
Melchizedek, you remember, comes to bless him. And part of his blessing is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth is who Melchizedek blessed him with. That's who's blessing you. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And so to carry that forward, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth will be your shield. I, God, will be your shield. There are two ways to ask God's God, God questions. One is in a defiant, stubborn, rebellious manner where you close your fist to the Lord. God, why? How are you going to do this? Why are you going to do this in a way that communicates distrust and really communicates an adversarial tone with the Lord? I've said this to you before. I'll probably keep saying it. I don't even know if it's good parenting, but uh, but it's what I do. So we can talk about that later. But there are times when I'll be having conversations with our boys, right? And so we can get a little bit, you know, riled up sometimes. And so sometimes I'll say to the guys, listen, you can almost, that's a very important word in this conversation. You can almost say anything you want to me. You can tell me you think that my rules are dumb. You can tell me, you know, you're not sure if I like you right now. You can say almost anything you want to me. But your tone of voice and your attitude toward me had better be in check. Because my number one goal as your parent is to teach you how to love and honor and fear and submit to the Lord by learning how to honor your parents. So come to me. I'm not saying come at me. No, 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 no. What I mean is I'm, I'm not provoking them either, right? This isn't a, I'm a big tough guy and you're not. It is, we can talk about anything. You got a question about life? I want you to come to me or your mom. That's what I want. You disagree with something we're doing? Fine, let's talk about it. You think it was a really bad decision? Fine. I've hurt you? Oh, I want to know. But there's a difference in saying, Oh, Lord, how will I know? How will you do this? And, Lord, I don't know if you're going to do this. Lord, why did this happen in my life? It doesn't make sense to me. Lord, you owe me an answer. No, but we come to the Lord as Abram came to the Lord with questions, but not questioning. You see the difference? We're asking questions to understand more. Oh, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In other words, Lord, I believe you. I mean, I left her. I sinned and I stumbled in my faith. I'll probably do it again. But I do believe you. But I'm super confused right now because you keep saying that my seed, my children, my family are going to inherit all this land. Right now, all I've got is Eleazar, who, yes, is part of my household because he lives with me and he, he works for me and he's my right hand man. And I don't know what I do without him, but I still don't have a child. And you keep telling me that one of my offspring will inherit this land. And Lord, I'm confused. I don't understand. 
And so he asks in the second way, which is a trusting manner. It's submissively as he does here. James tells us that we can and we should go to the Lord with questions. James 1, 2 through 5 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Do you hear that? You going through a trial? Count it joy. It's not the same as saying, man, I love this part of my hard life. No, I know God's doing something in it. Sometimes when I have the privilege of talking to people uh, and, and people are asking a question, one of the questions I'll ask back is, where do you see the Lord in this? What do you think, God, what do you think God's up to? Because it takes the perspective off of the immediate circumstance to say, there is, a, there is a God who is our shield, who is our protector, who is sovereign and good and wise. And he's working in everything from before the foundation of the world, Colossians 1 tells us. He has created works for us that we would walk in them. So when we endure trials, we know Romans 5 tells us that God is developing our faith and our character and our perseverance and endurance. But specifically here in James, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness required of believers by the way steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask god who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him now there are four ways i'm just going to kind of mention them quickly and then we're going to keep moving but four ways that god promises to shield the believer the first is from his enemies. Abram was in this point of fear. I mentioned that a few minutes ago. So Abram's in a point of fear, possibly fearful of his enemies, or at least knowing if I'm on God's side, I'm going to have more enemies in the future. I'll come to that in a minute. The psalmist David also had many enemies. David, if you read the Psalms, he's constantly praying for protection from his enemies. Anytime you work for the Lord and you stitch together a nation of Israel the way David did, you make enemies in the process. Anytime you serve to build the unity of the local church, you're going to make enemies because not everybody wants unity in the local church. Many people outside of the church don't want to see unity in the church. There are some who creep in who also do not want to see unity in the church. You're going to make enemies. David said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress in 2 Samuel. He is my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. How do we know? How do we know Abram's going to have enemies? Well, back in Genesis 12, 3, right? The, the Lord, the Lord said, that I will bless those who bless you or him and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. In other words, people are going to dishonor you because they're going to dishonor me as God. I'll handle them. And those who bless you, bless me, I'll bless them as well. So God will be your shield against your enemies. Okay. It's important that you understand we have enemies in this world. We're not the ones going out picking a fight, but we are standing true to God's word in the midst of whatever comes our way, locking arms, encouraging each other and helping each other to stand strong in the faith. God promises to shield Christians against Satan. It's very interesting that the strategy that God gives us to face 
the wiles of the, of the enemy in Ephesians with putting on the armor of God. And then in Peter, he says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So be watchful. And then, and, and we're told to stand firm after having done everything to stand standing in the strength which God supplies. God fights the battle. We stand in faith. James 4, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee to you. Resist the devil. It doesn't talk about any Christian taekwondo or anything special that you have to do. You pray, you get with God's people, you be surrounded with God's people and you resist the devil and he will flee. It doesn't say fight him off. It says resist and he will flee. Ultimately, we see God's ultimate protection of Job from Satan, even though he went through a lot with Satan. Right? Remember the conversation with Job and I mean, with uh, Satan and the Lord? Well, God, the only reason that he's standing true to you is because you have protected him. But if you take your hand off him, what does that mean? It does mean that he was Job's shield. And he did take his hand off for a period, but he limited anything that happened to Job. Anything Satan could do went through the sovereign, good, kind wisdom of God. God said, okay, okay. You think, well, why would God do that? Ah, that's a different question then. Well, why would God do that? God owes me an answer. You see, it's a different kind of question. God promises to shield Christians against temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken to you, taken you that's not common to man. What that does not mean is, this is easy. What it means is, you're in good company. Others have endured similar kinds of struggle. Similar kinds of temptation. Most notably, Hebrews 4, Jesus. Continuing first Corinthians, but God is faithful. It's the hinge of the verse. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God will be your shield against your enemies, uh, against Satan and against, uh, and against temptation. And finally, and there are more, but finally from bitterness. And I, I mentioned bitterness because when trials come in life, if we don't turn our perspective to the Lord and look at things through the proper lens of scripture. And I'm going to say again, with the help of God's people and the Holy Spirit, it is too easy, friends, to become bitter. It is too easy to run the tape in your mind of, of all the ways you think God should be treating you better and other people should be treating you better and you be, can become bitter. Paul says in Philippians 1.12 that his suffering, Paul's suffering, and his suffering was great. I don't even have time to go into it all, but he talks about shipwrecked and cold and starving and all these kinds of things. All of these things I give, I, 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 I am joyful because my suffering served to advance the gospel. That's why I'm here, to advance the gospel. Teenagers, look at me. You're here to advance the gospel if you're God's child. And that starts first and foremost in your home and with your relationships and your, and your friendships in school. 
Adults, you're here to advance the gospel of Jesus. Senior saints, you're here to advance the gospel of Jesus. You don't retire from ministry. Your ministry shifts. And you pray and you support and you encourage as we do everything that we can do to see the kingdom of God advanced with our part of it as Oak Grove Church. And so that helps the Lord protects us against bitterness. I want to ask you personally, how has the Lord allowed suffering in your life? Because I look around this room and I know a lot of you, maybe everybody, but in different ways have experienced great suffering, great trials and tribulation. I know it. We've, we've cried together. The church family has, has cried together. You've walked through these things together. Email prayer chains go out together, praying for one another. You're a praying church. You're a church that remembers to follow up and say, hey, how's this situation going? I'm so thankful for that. You know why? Because it means you're praying and you want to know how things are going. So you can continue praying or you can adjust your prayers. You can give praise to God for his victories. It advances the gospel specifically or expands our understanding of God's faithfulness, which is seen through his sovereign love. We say, God, you are good. I know you're good. I've been so confused these many months or years even, but I, I believe it. And now I'm, I'm starting to see it more. I'm starting to see in hindsight how you use this situation to magnify your grace. So we trust in God, our personal God. But then secondly, God gives us a hope. God points us in a direction. He does this with Abram. He says, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now he's already promised Abram and pointed him to a land. You're going to inhabit this land and your children, your children's children are going to inhabit this land. For Abram and our Old Testament saints, that land and, uh, and the presence of God among their midst was their great reward. For New Testament saints, we're looking to the return of our Savior and we look to a different reward, but we trust God and we look to his reward or uh, uh, the hope that God has pointed us to. Right. So when Abram says, man, there's two questions and an explanation or a question, an explanation. And then the Lord's answer early on. I know you're thinking, how on earth are we going to get through this entire chapter? Just hang with me. We'll get there. But it's front loaded. Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? You keep telling me my seed, my offspring are going to inherit this land, but I mean, I don't see anybody else and I'm kind of old. Lord, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. The Lord's answer, this man won't be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So here's what he does again. He's pointed him to land and he's pointing him to his offspring. He's pointing him to people. Specific people. This isn't take a promise from God and find whatever hope you want. We look to the hopes that God points us to. And so to demonstrate this, God takes Abram outside and he says, hey, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you can, 
Try to count the stars. If you're able to them, so shall your offspring be. And so because God, I mean, because Abram trusted his personal God, he hoped, he had hope, he had confidence in God's promise. I trust God, so I trust what he says. And so now I'm going to look at where he directs my eyes to hope. Verse 6 makes it very explicit. He believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now, when we think about the Old Testament, we often, and rightly so, we think about the Mosaic Covenant, Moses, the Ten Commandments, and everything that followed after that. But I want you to see, child of God, I want you to see, curious reader, I want you to see that faith precedes the Mosaic Covenant. Justification, which means to be made right with God, you must have faith. This precedes the, the Ten Commandments. So we always we often think of the Old Testament as the law and the rules, and no, no, go back further and say Genesis 12, Genesis 15. In fact, even go back further than this, right? We've seen this uh, lived out in Genesis already. Negatively, Adam and Eve failed to have faith and they ate the fruit. So their lack of faith in what God said, believing that God was good, resulted in their sin, which affects you and me to this day. We're sinners by original sin and we're sinners by choice. Cain didn't believe that God was good, and so his rage came out. Tell me my worship's not good enough. I'll show you. I'll kill the guy you like better, my brother. So Cain kills his brother Abel in a lack of faith. Noah believed God, his faith, and his, he and his family were saved from, uh, from God's judgment over the whole earth as a result of it. Peter even points all the way back to that. His faith is demonstrated by his actions. Genesis 6:22 says Noah did all this and God uh, all this and he did all that God commanded him and the Lord next chapter the Lord shut him in the ark. I have to keep moving. God told Abram to leave Ur and his faith demonstrated was demonstrated in his action. Okay Lord, I'm leaving. I'm following you. I'm going. And so now this is the central truth for our lives. The centerpiece of most of the Bible in Abram and fulfilled in through Jesus. Abram believed. He had faith and God counted it righteousness. Now here's the thing. What is righteousness? It's doing good as God defines good. Righteousness is to do the right deeds perfectly. That's the, the essence of righteousness. That would be sinless righteousness. What happened here? He had faith and now God counted faith as the righteous deed to rule them all. God counted his faith as his righteous deeds. Salvation comes by faith alone. I mean, justification. How can a man or a woman or a boy or a girl be made right with God? By believing that they are sinners who deserve to be separated from God. If you don't believe that first, salvation doesn't seem like much to you. 
Oh, I can live however I want and have God? Cool. No, 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 no. You go from not being sickly to being made better. You go from being dead to being alive. And that happens through faith. Acts 10, I love this. Acts 10, uh, Peter is at Cornelius' home and Cornelius is a centurion. Uh, so kind of an intimidating guy. And there's, you know, some people there and there's a lot of backstory. Acts 10 is a fascinating chapter. Anyway, so in their conversation, they're talking about, um, talking about favoritism and different things, conversation. And in 10, 34 and 5, Peter opened up his mouth. This is basically Cornelius is the host. And so he kind of quiets the crowd and he says, okay, Peter, now we're all here. Say what you got to say. You've got something good. I know it. Say it. So he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, a person hears does what is right, and they go one of two directions. The first direction is, okay, I'll try really hard. And they live a life of frustration on a perpetual treadmill of trying to do what is right and never measuring up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. Or they go the other direction and they go, do what is right. I can't. There you go. There you go. So Jesus came and he did it for you. If you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you can't do righteousness. And you believe that he did it perfectly and you receive or receive his free gift of salvation, that faith is credited to you as righteousness. So now go and help everyone else see what a wonderful, gracious God that you serve. Focusing on works, friends, it's only good insofar as we're focusing more on trusting the Lord and hoping in his promises, all of which we see in the Bible. Look at Romans uh, 4, 1 through 5. This is where we want to be careful. We don't get the cart before the horse because works matter. James writes a letter and says, works matter. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you something that's not faith at all. So works are a part of the conversation. But the problem is sometimes we get the horse in front of the cart. We have to be careful that we have it in place. So Romans 4, uh, what shall we say then? What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, according to his flesh? For if he was justified by works, then he's got something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. In other words, if you are good enough to get to heaven, then you get to heaven uh, hypothetically, right? Then you get to heaven and you don't praise God. You praise yourself because you got there on your own merit. But the Bible says when we try to get there on our own merit, the wages of sin is death. So we want to earn what you deserve. Well, it's spiritual death. It's physical death and it's eternal separation under the judgment of God, which is active for all of eternity. But we believe God's offer for salvation through repentance through faith and we received we receive all of god and all that heaven has to wield on your behalf as his children lastly we rest in the assurance god provides 
essentially God makes this covenant with Abraham. He takes him outside and he outside and he says, "Look at the stars. Can you count them?" He says, "Lord, how am I going to know that I'm going to possess it?" Again, he's asking questions, which is not the same as questioning. And so then, then the Lord does this elaborate ritual, brings these animals. They split the animals in half and they walk between the animals. That's essentially what they would do when they were making a treaty with someone. And essentially they would say, nations would say, kings would say, if I break this treaty, this is what will happen to me and my people. You'll destroy us, cut us in half. And I mean, that's kind of the idea. You'll slaughter us, you'll slay us. What the Lord does is he sets these animals on, on either side and then the Lord moves between the animals, not Abram. This is a unilateral covenant, a one-way covenant where God says, I'm going to do this for you, through you, and in you, and I am ratifying the covenant by my own demonstration. I walk between the covenant. And then he says, I know I'm moving back and forth here a little bit. Uh, he says, as darkness falls upon Abram before he does kind of what I just explained. Verse 13, he says, no for certain. Rest, child of God, in the assurance that God provides. We're trusting in the Lord by hoping in his promise, which is received only by faith. But you and I, as we continue on, we've got to rest in the assurance that he provides. He says, no for certain. That what? Oh, wait a minute. Well, if you're reading, he says that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that are not theirs. What's he tell them? You're going, excuse me, you're going to endure. Your children are going to endure 400 years of oppression. Christian, one day, our life will be all glory. Today, we endure with hope in great joy. Jesus said, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, won't they persecute you? Of course they will. But then the promise is this, verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation, judgment on the nation they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possession. In other words, I'm going to provide for you. You're going to take this land and you're going to be very wealthy. How? Well, <laughs> you're going to live under oppression uh, south down in Egypt for a while, 400 years, mind you. And But when you come out and I'll bring you out, and we're going to write some stuff about that. But when I bring you out... Let me tell you, it's not going to be like looking to see what you can sneak in your satchel on your way out. The people that I bring you out from are going to be like, here, take it all. Take whatever you want. Take it and go. And that's what happens in Exodus. God provides for his people through the judgment of the Egyptians. Okay, so as we close here, when the sun had come, uh, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is God unilaterally verifying the covenant. In verse 18, he says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. They didn't make a covenant together. 
the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Uh, And then he goes on and he he names all of these lands um, that are the promised land. And he says, I'm going to give it all to you. I'm going to do it all for you. Now, there's a lot in this chapter that we're covering. And so the, the, the main things that I want to ask you to really take away that are really the highlights that flow out of the text for us are that we're trusting in the Lord and his hope, his promise. Okay, you have to trust in the person before you can trust in their promise. But you also can't make up the promise. The promise is a promise that God gives, that God directs your eyes to. God directed Abram's promise to a land and to heirs. God directs our promise to an eternal living hope in heaven. But both salvation, which can only be received by faith alone, is also only guaranteed by what? The assurance God provides. And that's what we're to rest in. We rest in God's assurance, which is what for New Testament believers? The Holy Spirit. The Lord says, I give you the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. As a guarantee in him, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's your assurance. You have the sealing of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you cling to Jesus, you walk in the spirit, keeping in step with the spirit, which is how you are assured you are God's child. Because if you if you are if you can't keep in step with the spirit by his grace again, you are not God's child. So I can never overcome. It doesn't mean you're not going to have sin struggles. doesn't mean you're not going to doubt from time to time. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a life of faith that's dependent on the Holy Spirit, which you know is possible because God gives you the Spirit of God as a deposit, guaranteeing the promise that he gives us. Don't try to find assurance in anything that God doesn't give you assurance for. Find it in your ability by God's grace through faith to walk in love. To keep in step with the Spirit. I want to ask you as we wrap up, if if when trying to think through your own assurance of salvation, I want to ask you how far back you have to look. And here's what I'm getting at. If you prayed a prayer and you got dunked without evidence of walking in the spirit, that is not enough to validate your salvation. If you're... 65 and you say, well, no, I don't really do that. I don't really read the Bible very much. Oh, I don't really participate in that. Or I don't really do that. I don't really do that. Listen, I'm not telling you you don't know the Lord. I'm not telling you you're not a Christian. I don't know your heart. My question is, how far back do you have to look 
for something to give you confidence. And even if by this little exercise, you have to look back a long way, you may still, there may still be a mustard seed of faith in your life. And I would say, take it up. Take up the mantle of faith and start walking today. Start walking in the spirit today. You say, well, I've wasted my whole life not walking with the Lord. Your life is not over. You're alive. You're hearing God's word today. Cling to him. Repent, which is a gift of wonderful worship we saw in Genesis 13, right? Go back to Bethel. Rekindle your worship for the Lord and say, God, I may be 32, 55, or 83, but today I start anew. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. That was prayed by a man who was repentant from not walking with the Lord. You can experience the same joy, friend, brother, sister. Or you may, with God's gracious help, realize I'm trusting in religion not in a personal, my personal God. I'm trusting in routine. I'm trusting in church. Trusting in good works, really. And if that's you, God holds out this promise of life to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you. Believe what God says about himself, about who he is, and the promise, the hope that he gives to us. Through faith alone, and then rest in the assurance of his promises. Christian, if you're striving, and you're tired, and you're trying so hard, keep clinging to Jesus. You know, it's like those shows where somebody's, I don't know, falling off of a mountain or a roof or something like that, you know, and the guy reaches down and grabs his hand or her hand or whatever, and they're holding on and they're holding up. They're trying to say, I'm trying, I'm trying, and they start losing their grip. They start losing their grip, and we feel the same a lot of times. I'm starting to lose my grip. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Do not rest in the strength of your own grip. Rest in the grip of your Savior who says, I have you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Why? Because I have given you the Holy Spirit, the guarantor, the guarantee that I will bring you home. You keep looking to the shore. You keep striving with others. I'll carry it out because I will finish the work I completed.